Christmas. Well, thank you for joining us for this first Sunday of Advent. I mean Christmas. Wait, Christmas? First Sunday of Christmas? Am I confused? Did I wake up a, a week late? Well, no. It may surprise you, but in the traditional Christian calendar, Advent ends with the birth of Christ, and Christmas begins with the birth of Christ. So the church spends four weeks waiting for the coming of Christ in Advent, and then Christ comes, and the Christmas season begins. And for 12 days, the church focuses on the gift of God's coming, and then it reflects on the meaning of what it meant for the world that God would enter into the world as a baby. And then on that 12th day, they remember what we call Epiphany, where they celebrate the coming of the Magi who gave gifts to Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. So we are actually now beginning the Christmas season as the world has wrapped up its Christmas season. We as Christians begin our Christmas season to remember what it means to have the coming of Christ, to then look towards what it means for us as individuals, but also what it means for the world at large. And we get to look at what it means when the wise men came to seek from the east, seeking Jesus and bringing him their gifts. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we acknowledge that the fullness of the Christmas season has just begun. Help us to understand this morning what it means to have a God who would come in human flesh, to live and walk among us. Help us to know not just what it means for us, but the world at large. This morning, Father, help us to see Christmas because of Herod. And because of understanding Herod, we might understand Jesus more clearly. Help us, Father, to understand Jesus more clearly and understand how we might relate to the world more clearly. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, my sermon this morning has three titles. So if you write these down, they will help you to remember the point of the sermon. The first sermon, which I'll, uh, the first title, which I'll say is a sophisticated title, is Celebrating Christ in a Herodian World. Celebrating Christ in a Herodian World. The second title is Choosing a Manger in a World Looking for Thrones. That's the catchy title. Choosing a Manger in a World Looking for Thrones. And then I'll say the simple title. Jesus came, so what? Jesus came, so what? One sermon, three titles. Celebrating Christ in a Herodian world. Choosing a manger in a world looking for thrones. And Jesus came, so what? Most of us don't think much about Herod when it comes to the Christmas story. Most of us don't talk much about Herod or what he did as part of the Christmas story. And yet, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that we can't rightly understand Christmas unless we rightly understand Herod. You see, the way Matthew tells us the Christmas story, you can't actually have Christmas without Herod. Herod was absolutely essential to the Christmas story. But he's not just essential in that you couldn't have Christmas without him. Herod was important to the Christmas story because God wants us to understand the story through Herod. So to understand the Christmas story, you have to understand who Herod was, what he was like, the values he stood for. To understand what it meant for Jesus to come during the reign of King Herod, you have to understand all that Herod was about. So if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open your, uh, your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. 
In Galatians 4, one of the things Paul says is this. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. The apostle Paul tells us that Jesus came at just the right time. And what we see in the Gospel of Matthew, verse chapters 1 through 3, is that that perfect time was ordained by God in a very specific way. Chapter 1 will tell us that there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, and then 14 generations from David uh, to the exile, and 14 generations from the exile to the birth of Christ. Matthew wants you to see that this perfect time that Paul refers to was ordained by God very specifically. That Jesus is born during the reign of King Herod specifically by God's providential will and not coincidence or coincidence. Are we good? Or do I need to switch? All right, we're moving. All right, so Matthew wants you to see that this perfect time that Paul refers to was done orderly in God's will. God wills that Jesus would come specifically during the reign of Herod because he wants us to see something because Jesus comes during the time of Herod and not somebody else. So let's look at what Jesus, at what Matthew has to say in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, and they bowed down and worshipped him. When they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Egypt. I mean Israel, sorry. 
But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You'll see here, after telling us in chapter 1, Matthew tells us 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile, 14 generations from the exile to the time of Christ. You get the sense that Matthew is pointing this picture that God has purposefully ordained and laid out these events in history so that Jesus would come at the perfect time, so that he would be there when King Herod was ruling. And Matthew tells us three specific prophecies that relate to Herod and the coming of Jesus that were fulfilled, that were part of God telling his people, this is what's going to happen, so you will know when my son, the Messiah, comes. He tells us the first one would be that they would call, call them out of Egypt. So because of this story, Jesus and his family flees to Egypt. And the prophet Hosea says, out of Egypt I would call my son. That's a fulfillment prophecy because of Herod. Next, we find out that Herod was a little crazy and uh, killed a lot of kids. You don't really see that on TV when you have Christmas specials, do you? That's not on the Hallmark Channel, is it? It's not really in many Christmas pageants. But yet in this story, because of this, there's weeping. And that fulfills a prophecy by the prophet Jeremiah relating to the coming of Christ. And then lastly, as the family returns back into their homeland, they settle in the town of Galilee, and in the area of Galilee, and Jesus is called a Nazarene. Again, a fulfillment of prophecy. These three prophecies are given, related, all because of things that Herod did, all because of the role Herod plays in this story. And so to understand Jesus' coming, we have to understand Herod. Well, let me tell you about King Herod. Herod was brilliant. He was good in business in architecture, and even alchemy. You know, second to David and Solomon, he was the most powerful king the Jews had ever had. And he was brilliant. He was a builder. He actually built more things in ancient Israel than Solomon and David put together. Because of King Herod, domes were incorporated into civic architecture. Most of you can think of at least one domed building you've seen, whether it's the Capitol building or... Um, buildings in Europe? Well, it turns out that Herod was the first ruler to incorporate domes into civic buildings. And because of Herod's architecture, all these domes started to be incorporated into civic buildings across Europe. Even today, in architecture school, they study Herod and his influence on architecture. A lot of you have seen medieval castles, or you're familiar with the idea of these fortified palaces. Well, it turns out before Herod, you had palaces, and you had fortresses. But Herod wedded the two together so that you had fortified palaces that became fortress palaces. He created this idea that you would take the home of the king and then create a fortified structure around it so that rather than the king having to run from a palace to a fortified place, you would make a fortified palace. Because of Herod and his architectural mind and genius, they then started to have these fortified fortresses that became palaces for kings. That influenced uh, architecture so much that up until post-Renaissance Europe, you still had these medieval castles that were fortified structures where royalty lived. That's because of King Herod. King Herod built so many aqueducts throughout 
uh, the promised land or the ancient Israel, that he created waterways, that he was able to build a fortified city called Masada in the middle of the, of the Israeli desert. So you have this, this, this fortified fortress. It ends up being 300 to 1,300 feet high. Depending on which way you approach it, it's either 300 feet high or 1,300 feet high. But in the middle of the desert, he created a fortress that had all these secret aqueducts that was able to sustain this fortress in the desert. It was so well fortified and designed that Jewish rebels held up in Masada for over two years against a, a Roman force of 15,000 troops. People to this day marvel at how Herod was able to create this these secret aqueductal system to bring water. How do you get water in the middle of the desert? How do you get water in the middle of the desert to go up 300 to 1,300 feet? How do you get water in the desert to go up 300 to 1,300 feet to sustain an entire fortress for several years against an army of 15,000 people? Unbelievable. It was amazing. At the same time, Herod rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. The temple that Jesus worshipped at, Herod rebuilt in BC, 19 BC. There are stones there that were two to 200 tons in weight that, they, that he laid to build the temple. And at the time he built the temple, it was the largest temple in the ancient world. This temple uh, that the Jews worshipped at was built by Herod. And even today, when you go to visit the temple and you go to the Wailing Wall and you look at some of the stones that were thrown, those are all stones that were Herodian stones. They were put there by Herod because he designed and rebuilt the temple that the Jews worshipped at. Not only that, Herod built the city of Caesarea. We call it Caesarea uh, in our English language, but the Jews call it Caesarea. Caesarea was the largest port in the ancient world. The, ports, the, port that was in the part that was in the water for the port was over 260 acres. There's a, there was a theater there that seated over 4,000 people. They still use that theater today for shows. He had a t palace that was 25 acres that was 20 stories high. He built the largest temple to Caesar at Caesarea. It was the largest temple to Caesar in the known world at the time. He built Caesarea, this huge port city, to honor the Caesar of Rome. You see, Herod had this immense architectural genius. In fact, when he built one of his palaces, see, Caesar had one palace. Herod actually had nine fortress palaces. They, they would say that Herod's palaces were more formidable than the palace that Caesar lived in in Rome. Because Herod built nine of them. The one that he stayed in the most was between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. But to have it built, Herod literally had a mountain moved. He moved an entire mountain. He moved the mountain and built his palace fortress on top of this mountain because he wanted to be able to look around and see what was happening. He literally moved this mountain and built his palace between Jerusalem and Bethlehem so that he could see what was going on. He literally moved a mountain. It was unheard of in that time. Not only was, was Herod brilliant in terms of architecture and building and design, and engineering, in fact, but he was a brilliant businessman. You see, one way that Herod was able to accomplish all this building was because he was extremely wealthy. It is said that he had more wealth than Caesar, and it has been said that he was the wealthiest man to have ever lived. Scholars believe that if you were to take his wealth into today's term, he would have more money and wealth than Elon Musk. 
Well, we wonder, where did he get all this money? It's because his family had owned balsam farms. And as an alchemist, he created a way of mixing the balsam and created an aphrodisiac. This aphrodisiac sold for thousands per bottle. And he actually killed anybody who, who tried to give away the secret recipe. And only a few people worked with it. But because he designed this aphrodisiac with the balsam that his family had on all their farms, he then created himself a mass amount of money. So what you see is Herod was brilliant. He was industrious. He was smart. He built some of the largest buildings in the Middle East. He built some of the largest temples in the Middle East. He built things that to this day people visit in ancient Israel. And he was extremely wealthy. But at the same time, Herod was a bit ruthless. You see, Herod had a lust for power and affluence. And so because he had a lust for power and affluence, he was quick to strike out that, at anything that might threaten his control. He was so worried that people might try to rebel against him that when he became king, he rounded up all the Jewish leaders and had them executed because he didn't want them to lead an uprising. He was so worried that his sons might try to take the throne before he died, he killed his two oldest sons. And then on his deathbed, he had his third oldest son killed. You see, his third oldest son was, realized that his father was dying. And he realized that he had been a somewhat harsh ruler. So he started to put in a process a way of easing some of the restrictions that his father had on the people. And he started to set in motion things that would stabilize the region. But this was five days before Herod would die. And in those five days, Herod was still king. And Herod found out that he was starting to make changes or getting ready to make changes. And so rather than realizing he was dying and his time was gone, he had his third son killed as well. Herod cared so much about his wife Miriam that his love became an obsession. He was so worried. He, he cared so much about her. He was so enamored with her that he was afraid she might cheat or that someone might lure her away. So he had her killed embalmed, and then he encased her in the palace walls. And Josephus records that every night he would go down and talk to Miriam in the wall because he loved her so much. Herod was ruthless. It is said that he killed thousands every year to maintain his control, so that by the time of the end of his life, he may have killed almost half a million people just to maintain control over the area. When Herod was dying, he wanted people to mourn him. So what he did was he rounded up all the leaders of the Jews, all the civic leaders, people in the high priest family, uh, people in the ruling families. He rounded them all up and threw them in jail. And he told his officers that when he died, they were to kill all these leaders because he wanted all of Israel to mourn at his passing. In fact, he was so ruthless, Caesar is alleged to have said, I would rather be a pig than a member of fa Herod's family because a pig has a better chance of living. You know, in some ways, Herod was unhinged. He was a little crazy, a little fanatical, and yet the Romans loved him. They loved him because he was loyal to Rome. He paid his taxes on time, and he always paid the full amount. Not only that, he kept trade routes open to Syria and the east, 
and he quelled any uh, sense of rebellion. So because of him, Rome experienced a very stable eastern border. He maintained order and kept trade routes open, and he honored Rome. He built more temples to Caesar than any prior uh, nobleman or king or executive in all of the Roman Empire. They say that because of Herod, the worship of Caesar began. Because he built that huge temple to Caesar as God in Caesarea, and then he built other temples to honor the Caesars, that eventually emperor worship took root because of Herod. But Herod was extremely shrewd. On the one hand, he would pay taxes to Rome on time and always in the full amount. He would keep trade routes open so that people, the Roman government could still do trade with the east. He quelled rebellion and kept everything happy for the Romans. And on the other hand, he placated the Jews. He built the temple, made it larger than it was ever, had ever been. He put money into the temple coffers. He supported the work of the Sanhedrin in maintaining religious order amongst the Jews. And, and he supported all their religious activities. So the Jews were relatively happy because they were allowed to keep power. The Romans were happy because he was allowed, that he kept their trade routes open, and he just continued to amass wealth, power, and influence. And so you have to understand that when, when the wise men come to Herod, who is king of the Jews, that was his title. That was his role. He was the king. He was there to rule over the people. In fact, he built his whole life of control, of maintaining his reign and rule as king of the Jews. So you can only imagine what it was like for him to have wise men coming from the east that he'd never met and said, where is the one to be born king of the Jews? Tell us so that we can worship him. They didn't just come to acknowledge a new king. They came to acknowledge this new king and to lay in worship before him. And you can only imagine how, how Herod would have felt given the degree to which he had exerted control over the land. Some of you may have remembered what it was like uh, in East Germany or Soviet Union or even in China today. They had secret networks of spies. Herod, they say, was one of the first rulers to employ this secret network of spies. He was so concerned of, about upruling, uh, of uprisings and revolts, he actually accumulated a network of spies. And anybody who was accused of potentially uprising or revolting or dissent would be killed. Even if they brought up an accusation that couldn't be proved, he would act on it because he figured that would be a lesson to everybody so that nobody would act against him. And so you can imagine why verses 16 and 17 didn't shock anybody. You see, verse 16 says, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. You see, when Herod goes and kills all the kids two years, all the boys two years and under, everybody would have been like, this is just crazy Herod doing what he does. They were so used to his oppression and control that it didn't shock them. And so when Matthew tells us that Jesus came to be born king of the Jews, and you understand the Christmas story, you have to understand that the backdrop isn't of quiet, peaceful life out in the countryside. Ah, no, quite the contrary. The backdrop isn't peacefulness and calm in a calm, idyllic countryside. The background is King Herod, king of the Jews. Power, a throne, 
the elite, control, manipulation, everything that you would associate with true power in the world. And against that backdrop, Jesus comes, and he's supposed to be king of the Jews. That's a little odd, don't you think? You know, if you were to walk in here and said, I'm going to be the pastor of the church, a lot of us would say, we've got pastors. If someone came in and said, I'm going to be the president of the United States, we would say, we've got a president. If, if I tried to walk into Wes Turnbow's business and say, I'm going to be the owner, Wes would look at me and be like, no, no, I'm the owner. You see, there was a king. The Jews had a king. They, are, they had the richest king they had ever had. They had had the king who had built more than any other king. They had a king who had a tighter grip of control than any king they had ever had previously. There was a king already. So when Jesus shows up and people say he's going to be born king of the Jews, they'd be like, but we got a king and he's there. But doesn't that make the point? You see, the wise men would have gone to, to, to Herod's palace. They would have seen the throne, fancy and inlaid with gold. They would have seen the palace high on a hill. They would have seen him gathered with the elite. They would have seen the amount of power he had as they had to walk in through guards. They say he had over 2,000 personal bodyguards. They would have seen the amount of influence he had because at a snap of a finger, thousands could be killed. They could see how much control he had that people would literally wait for his word before doing a thing. And they would have gone down from that lofty height to a small cave in a small town called Bethlehem. And they would have seen a baby lying in a feeding trough, the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor, the weakest of the weak, no ability to coerce or manipulate anybody, having very little control for their own lives. And they would have had to make a choice. Which will we worship as king of the Jews? Which would we worship as the king over humanity? Imagine the faith it would have took for shepherds who have roamed the land and looked up at Herod's palace and walked by this cave thousands of times and seen animals coming out and animals feeding out of this trough. Imagine the faith it would have taken for them to come and to look at this baby in a feeding trough and worship him as Lord. Imagine the faith it would have taken for the Magi to come, traveling from the east with all these expensive gifts, having spent time at Herod's palace and then to come and sit in this random place outside a small town where we often say no room at the inn and to see a baby in swaddling cloths in a feeding trough and yet declare him as Lord. You can only imagine the Christmas story as it really unfolded. The amount of faith it would take to behold that God would come in human form to be Lord of all, King not just of the Jews, but of all humanity. Because you're looking up. You've heard, you've heard about this throne that Herod sits in. You've seen the outside of the palace. You haven't even been in it, but you've heard. 
You've heard about the elite who get to go in. You've seen the power he has to manipulate and coerce. And you've seen the control he has over everything. And in contrast, you're told the king of the Jews is here. Feeding trough. A cave. No power or influence. No ability to coerce or manipulate. No control. And you would be posed with this question, who really is king? When I think about this contrast, four things come to mind. The first is that things aren't always what they seem to be. You see, Herod had control. Herod had wealth. Herod had influence. Herod had power. Herod had a palace and a throne. Jesus had none of those things. Which would you choose? Let's be honest. Lisa and I went and saw her family recently for, to celebrate the holidays. And as you can imagine, the airport's a little chaotic at this time of year between COVID and the holiday rush and airlines being short-staffed. Well, I was glad that I was not in Group 7. I was more than happy to be in Group 1 with the elite travelers. I don't know about you, but most of us like to have elite status, whether it's Amazon Prime, hotel elite status, um, whether it's your... Um, department store elite status. We like to get special perks. We like to have all the benefits of elite status as opposed to the unfulfilled wants of the have-nots. You know, one of the things that comes with um, elections and the psychology of elections and news reporting, they found out that people, I know this would not be any of you, people will vote for somebody who they think is actually a worse candidate just because they think that person's gonna win. People will actually vote for somebody who they think is worse but they think will win than to vote for someone who they think is better because they think they're going to lose. Because psychologically, people like to be associated with the winner. You know, there's a crazy thing they did, these studies with cars. If there's two cars, equal safety ratings, equal performance ratings, equal reliability ratings, equal fuel economy, people will buy the car with a fancier name just because the status it gives you even if it's up to 20% more, then they'll buy the car that has equal safety, equal performance, equal reliability, equal fuel economy. Because of the status, because of the symbol, because of the feeling you get when people see you in that fly car. It's why people buy an Acura instead of a Honda, except in that case, Acura's actually a little bit better than Honda. But hey, you get my point. People, people are willing to pay more for a name and a label because of how they feel. That's why when you go to downtown or go overseas, there's a whole market for knockoffs. Why do people want to buy a knockoff of a Gucci watch or Puma shoes? They do them because they like how people, they feel when people see their status wearing those things, even if they know it's not real. Well, Mary, the shepherds, the wise men, they blow that to smithereens. Because they realize that what we see is not always what is. They saw Jesus and they recognized that he had zero power, all vulnerability, zero control, all dependence. No ability to manipulate or coerce. Dependence. No control over his environment. But totally entrusting God. 
And they were able to realize that in the contrast between height, the heights of power and wealth and control, that true power and true hope lied elsewhere. Maybe sometimes you're tempted to look at your life and you see the atheists who you feel like are doing way better than you. Maybe the Christmas story is a reminder that not everything is as it seems. Maybe you felt like you've been trying to live faithfully at your life, honoring God at work and in the way you do things, but people who are cutting corners, taking advantage of others, not following ethical practices, they're doing better than you, and you wonder, God, how is this fair? Maybe you're struggling to make ends meet, and you're giving 10% to the work of God and to serve others, and you just wonder, because you look across the street and there's someone raking in the dough and they give less than 1% to charity and you wonder, God, where's the justice in this? And maybe the word from the Christmas story, and maybe the word we need to get from Mary and the shepherds and the wise men is that not everything is as it seems. Maybe there's more than meets the eye. The second thing that I think of is that compromise is easier. Compromise is easier. In a post-pandemic world, hybrid is the name of the game. Hybrid school schedule, hybrid work schedule, hybrid travel, hybrid payment plans. Whoever thought? Herod was the king of hybrid. You see, Herod believed in the God of the Old Testament. He actually, um, Old Testament, sorry. He knew the Old Testament. He read the Old Testament. He was half Jewish. He knew the Jewish text, and he actually followed all the religious ceremonies. He built the temple. He gave up his own money and put money every year in the coffers so that the temple ministry could continue. He supported the ruling council of the Sanhedrin. He invested in the religious life of the Jews. And at the same time, he is known for Hellenizing Jerusalem. Because while he respected the religion of the Jews, he wanted to help Israel become a little bit more cutting edge. He wanted to join the rest of the world culturally and economically. And so while he did build up the temple, he also built up God, uh, temples to Caesar. He also practiced some of the uh, Greek religious rites. He supported the ability for Greek people and Hellenists and all of ancient Israel to practice their religion. He actually, uh, because of him, there's a group in the New Testament, when you read about them, they're called the Hel uh, Herodians. Well, who were the Herodians? The Herodians were a Jewish sect that followed the ways of Herod. And what were they known for? They were syncretists. They followed the religion of the Old Testament and the Jews. But they also took on the cultural practices of the Greeks. They were Jewish in religion, but Greeks socially and culturally. It was great. Because on the one hand, you could still show up to your, to your family gathering with grandma and grandpa who still go to the synagogue, and you could say, hey, I still believe in, the, in that God. I still read Isaiah and Jeremiah. I still celebrate the Passover and Purim and the Feast of Tabernacles and Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, and you could, they, could, they could be there with the family because that's, that's our religion. I care about religion, they said. And then the very next day, they can go with their Greeks and have a 
a really crispy piece of bacon, and they can hang out with the Greeks, and they can invest in the things that the Greeks do, and they can pursue the, uh, the Greek culture and pleasure. I mean, the Herodians. Herod had a thousand pools. They say that King Herod had more pools than any other king at that time. On Masada, there were more than 30 different pools because he loved pools. And the, and the Herodians were known for being pleasure seekers as well. But you see, when you were being accused of being a Greek materialist, you could be, oh, no, 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 I'm Jewish in faith. I contribute to the poor at the temple. I give to the work so that the poor are cared for. I support the work of the temple. I'm not like those materialists. And at the same time, when the Greeks would accuse you of being like those Jews, you'd be like, hey, hey, no, I, I'm eating bacon with you. I can hang out with you and go to your festivals. You see, the Herodians, because they were syncretists, they can go both ways. They never had to really make a choice. They never had to choose the way of God of the Old Testament of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the gods of the Greeks, Zeus, Athena. They could just do a little bit of both. Why not have the best of both worlds? The Herodians existed and profited and grew during this time because in many ways compromise is easier. And even in today's world, if we're honest, isn't compromise sometimes easier? You can believe what you want. I, I respect your beliefs. But then you can go and do something else. I'm going to support your faith, but I'm going to do something else. You never have to take a stand. You never have to be that guy at the party. You never have to be the guy to go against the grain because you can always go with the flow. Isn't compromise easier? The story reminds us that compromise is easier because the whole group of Herodians grew up because Herod created a path where compromise became success. But number three, Jesus came to give us a choice. But he didn't come just to give us a choice because the choice had always been there. Jesus came to force us to make a choice. Jesus came to be king of the Jews. He didn't come to be sidekick to Herod. He didn't come to be some martyr that you would find inspirational for your moral life. Jesus didn't come to be some ethical Zen master that you would follow for peace in your world. Jesus came to be king of the Jews, but not just of the Jews, but of all humanity. Jesus came not to be Herod's sidekick, not so that you can have the ways of Herod and then claim the peace of Christ. Jesus came to be king. And when he came to be king, he forced you to make a choice. Who will be your king? Will you choose a manger or will you choose a throne? Will you choose a cave or will you choose a palace? Will you choose the way of service and sacrifice? Or will you choose the path of power? Will you choose to be with the lonely and the weak? Or will you choose the affluent and the elite? Will you choose the way of submission and trust? Or will you choose the way of manipulation, coercion, and control? You see, Jesus gave that, Jesus came that we would not just have a choice. The choice was always there. He came that we would have to make a choice. Who will be king in your life? Who will be king in your life? You see, for the early Christians, the choice of who would be king was always there. And they had to wrestle with the question, how will we live with Jesus as king in a Herodian world? How will we today 
live with Christ as king in a Herodian world built on power and affluence. In rich, affluent America. How will we live as followers of Jesus? In a world where America is arguably dominant, and even though people mock us and try to take us down, arguably they wait to see what America will do. No matter who the president is, consumer indexes, things that happen in America, they say if America sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. How will we as Christians live with Jesus as king in a world where affluence appears to be king? When the ways of Herod don't seem to have gone away with his death, but instead live on today. How will we live as those who say that Jesus is our king? Jesus came so that we would have to make a choice. When you think about your politics, your business practices, the way you do things contractually, whether it's with your home, your friends, your car, what do they say about your life? Who is king in your life? When you look at your bank statements, your credit card statements, your cell phone records, your daily calendar, what do they say is king of your life? Herod had a throne, a palace, lots of influential friends, Lots of power and lots of control. Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. He died naked and poor. His friends abandoned him, and he had no hope but to trust in God. Whose life does your life look more like? I'm going to cut a little even closer to home. This is a gut check for me and for you and our friends and family. What does giving gifts at Christmas have to do with the birth of Christ? What did your Christmas celebration and the party around the tree and the wrapped boxes and the emailed gift cards, if you're looking at what I want, you can just email gift card. That's way better. What did those have to do with the birth of Christ? What did they tell your family about who is king in your life? Did they reflect the vulnerability and the sacrifice of Jesus? Or were they odes to consumerism and eliteness in our world today? It may surprise you to realize that for over almost 1,800 years, Christians celebrated Christmas without any gifts. You see, Steve Nissenbaum, in the book The Battle for Christmas, documents that the first idea of giving gifts developed in the early 1800s in New York. People were worried because New York City was becoming increasingly urbanized, and there were social pressures, so people wanted to create a family tradition. So you created traditional Christmas meals where you would give gifts to celebrate family. That allowed them to pull out away from urbanization and into, back into the family unit. It also allowed them to affirm the bond 
between Christian faith and capitalism and consumerism. I mean, this is what he says in his book anyways. And so out of that was born this tradition of Christmas sales, special Christmas uh, items, seasonal uh, items, and then therefore you would give special gifts at Christmas to your loved ones. And I love Christmas. I am not anti-Christmas gifts. In fact, my family's celebrating Christmas after this, and I hope I get some good gifts. And I love going to Disneyland at Christmas time because I love it's a small world with all the Christmas-themed things, and I love the fake snow that goes on, and I love Christmas traditions. I was in every Christmas play, my parents can attest to this because they're in the back, from, grade, uh, from age three all the way to ninth grade. I was in every Christmas production my daycare or school had. And my mom has these videos on 8-millimeter films. Some of you will remember those, where you see me saying, I wish you a Merry Christmas, and I'm like the like little lead elf, whatever. I love Christmas, and I love getting gifts, and I love giving gifts. But the gut check for me, church, is what does giving gifts have to do with the birth of Christ? And how would I celebrate the birth of Christ by my gift giving? We are beginning the Christmas season. This is, this is the second day. Christmas was yesterday, birth of Christ. We have 12 days to celebrate Christmas. Will you allow your Christmas season to end with the gifts you gave around a Christmas tree on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day? Or will you embrace the next 12 days and embrace the message of the, coming, of the king who came vulnerable and low? So when I think about Herod, king of the Jews. I'm reminded, one, things aren't always what they seem. Two, compromise is easy. Number three, that Jesus came to make us make a choice. And number four, we're left with the question of what will we do? What will you do? You see, this is crazy, but they've done these studies. No matter how good or bad my sermon is, in three months, less than 10% of you will remember it. No matter how good or bad this sermon is, in, in, in three months, less than 10% of you will remember it. However, if you do something because of this sermon within the next 48 to 72 hours, maybe you go through notes that you wrote, maybe you reflect on questions, maybe you change one habit. If you do one thing in the next 48 to 72 hours because of the sermon, in three months, over 50% of those people will remember what this sermon said. And so... Understanding Herod and the coming of Jesus begs the question, what will we do? What will you do? You see, the early Christians had to sacrifice every day. Some of them had to give up business partners because they didn't want to do business with those Christians. They had to, to risk family ostracization because they had begun to that faith. They had to give up, in some cases, political influence because they were thrown out of synagogues and they were thrown out of local areas. Sometimes they were thrown out of trade unions because if you're a metallurgist and everyone's making idols and your thing is idols are a waste of time, that kind of goes against your whole trade. So you can imagine all the Christians choosing to follow the way of Jesus. They had a choice every day on what they were going to do. They had to choose the way of the lowly, the way of the vulnerable. When presented with a throne, they had to pick a manger. When presented with a palace, they had to pick a cave. When they were presented with influence and the elite, they had to pick the lowly and the unseen. When presented with those who had, could coerce and manipulate, they had to pick the way of sacrifice and service. When 
when painted with the, uh, presented with control and power, they had to pick the way of trust and meekness. What will you do this week? Having seen Herod high on his throne in a fortified palace, surrounded by the elite, full of power and the ability to manipulate and coerce, total control, what will you do with Jesus, your king, born in a manger, in a cave, lowly of low, weakest of weak, poorest of poor, here to sacrifice and to serve, here to trust God more than control. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we're reminded that we live in a Herodian world, but you've called us to celebrate Christ. And my fear is, Lord, that we have actually celebrated more like Herodians than as Christians. We've been presented with palaces, and it's been so hard to pick a cave. And even though sometimes we have a manger, we want that throne. We know, Father, that Jesus came when the set time had fully come, when there was a king in Israel named Herod, who was powerful, smart, industrious, rich, and in total control. But Jesus came to be our king. Jesus came as our suffering servant, our friend, our counselor, our prince of peace. And so, Father, this morning, in this moment, help us to hear your voice, to allow your spirit to lead us. When presented with the choice, who will be king? Help us to do more than make a statement in our head, but help us to live into the call of Jesus, our king. Jesus, thank you for coming, being vulnerable and weak, of being among the poorest of the poor, and trusting God that we might know how to live with Jesus as King. We pray this in his name. Amen.